welcome back. I hope everyone had a good lunch. I'm David Wu, the Operations Director of the Gray Center. And we now have a panel on current issues in presidential administration and executive power. Our moderator is Christopher Walker, the John W. Bricker Professor of Law at The Ohio State University. And we're especially lucky to have him as the moderator because he's also one of the initiators of the entire symposium today. So thank you for doing both those things. All the panels are great, but this is the best panel for uh, for, for right after lunch. Um, and we're going to do this a little bit differently because the topics are a little bit a little bit not as connected as the prior panels. We're going to spend each one's going to do a quick introduction of their paper. We're going to spend about twenty minutes on each paper. So if you have comments, we'll have some time at the end as well for comments. But if you have a comment on a particular paper once we're done, just get in the queue, uh, and we'll kind of do it that way. And I just wanted to start out by saying. With presidential administration, it's one of those articles where most of what she says is not new uh, at the time, right? It, it had been said before, but she's just such a good writer, and she said it better than anyone else, right? And I think that's part of it, or at least she had a way of synthesizing uh, the existing literature and the existing you know, conversations about presidential power in a way that was quite powerful. But another thing about it that I think is worth noting is that she's writing from her experience in the White House, um, right, from her practical experience there. And as I kind of quickly introduce each speaker before they go, I want to kind of weave that in, because I do think our personal experiences really do shape um, the way we view the administrative state, the way we view the role of government. Quite frankly, we heard a lot of that from Judge Rao today at lunch as well. It's kind of shocking how much our own interactions with government do that. So our, our first presenter is Bijal Shah, uh, who's an associate professor of law at Arizona State University's O'Connor School of Law. Um, and I just want to kind of flag, I'm not going to do a long introduction, but I want to flag that she was an associate gen, um, general counsel of the Executive Office of Immigration Review at the Justice Department uh, for, for a couple of years, right? Uh, and she was also a presidential fellow at DHS and at USCIS. Um, and her work uh, is it, just so, I, I just love it. I mean, my, one of my favorite articles when I first met Bajal was, uh, or first discovered her as a scholar, was uncovering coordinated interagency adjudication. Just as a really rich account uh, of, of how agencies collaborate or sometimes don't collaborate when they adjudicate. Uh, and you can see from that article and every article since, that Vajal's deep understanding on the ground experience at agencies shapes how she views the administrative state and her scholarship. And so today she's going to be talking about the purpose of presidential administration, one of her latest papers. And I'd also just note, in addition to being at Arizona State, she'll be visiting at Berkeley in the spring. So I'll turn it over to you, Vajal. We're going to do 20 minutes total, but they're going to go for like 8 to 10 minutes. Uh, and then if you have questions, definitely get in the queue for that paper, because I'd like to kind of get us a, a good amount of interaction with each paper before we move to the next one. Thank you, Chris, for that very kind introduction, and, and thank you to the Gray Center for hosting us and for this terrific uh, symposium today and for everybody's, everyone's participation. Um, <clears throat> so my, my project really focuses on one question, which is how and to what extent the president impacts agencies' capacity to execute the law. So on the one hand, we know Article 2 of the Constitution vests the president with the power to exercise control over her own branch. But on the other hand, Article 2 is also the direct constitutional source of the president's obligation to respect legislative supremacy. And so several scholars, Jack Goldsmith, John Manning, Jillian Metzger, others have acknowledged that the Constitution requires the president as well to ensure that those who actually execute statutory law, namely agencies, 
act with fidelity to that law also. So certainly Article 2 is a source of presidential power, and in particular, uh, to engage in discretion that may give the president room to reshape the effective reach of laws enacted by Congress. However, this power is supposed to be wielded for the purpose of executing statute. <clears throat> so my paper really is preoccupied with the profound question of what it means for the executive branch to execute legislation in an administrative state that is rife with administrative action and discretion that is influenced by the president. So... My remarks will continue as, follow, as, as follows. First, I'll introduce my primary argument, which is that the sort of self-centered focus of presidential administration undercuts statutory law. Second, I'll discuss examples of presidential intervention in agencies' implementation of statute. And so this discussion will sort of illustrate my argument that the president interferes with administrative fidelity to legislative mandates. And then finally, I suggest that to better uphold its responsibility to execute the law, the executive branch must be required to reconcile presidential intervention and administrative action with the requirements and essence of statute. So uh, to that end, I offer pathways for Congress and courts to encourage the president and agencies to do just that. I anticipate this, these remarks will be about eight to ten minutes long, hopefully, because that's what I've been given. <laughs> uh, so scholars assume that presidential control over agencies should be leveraged for the president's own purposes. That is, in order to achieve her policy goals and benefit her political interests. Of course, critics of presidential administration have concerns about the legitimacy and the wisdom of the president's preferences, but nobody questions the president's use of her power over agencies for her own policymaking ends, or alternatively, whether the exercise of this power should be motivated by other considerations. So what other considerations, you might ask? In other words, why would the president engage in administration if not in order to pursue her own policymaking agenda? Well, instead of pursuing her own policy goals at all costs, the president could leverage her power over agencies to ensure greater fidelity to legislative requirements and the, the essence and purpose of legislation. And yet, this obligation is rarely the president's motivation for intervening in agency action. So before I continue, I should note a few important limits to my argument. First, I don't place presidential administration in opposition to good government. Presidents can make good policy, as defined by any number of criteria. In addition, presidents sometimes use their power to coordinate agencies or even to bolster expertise in order to pursue good governance. And uh, Congress may have intended for the president to exercise significant discretion in the execution of law. But even when the outcomes of presidentialism correspond to legislative expectations, the president is usually motivated by her own policy goals or executive agenda, as opposed to a keen interest in faithful execution. Second, to be clear, I'm not engaging in the usual unitary executive debate regarding whether the president only has oversight authority or whether she also has directive authority or can even step into the shoes of agency heads. Uh, um, you know, in other words, this is not an argument concerning the scope or allocation of executive power. And I'm also not arguing against centralization. Rather, my concern is with the motivations or incentives that drive presidential administration. In fact, one could imagine a unitary executive theory that emphasizes strong, directive, and expansive presidential control over agencies wielded in order to pursue the execution of the law for the law's own purposes, as opposed to the president's policy aims alone. But as it turns out, that seems not to be the case. So... In the mid-20th century, the Supreme Court made explicit this idea that agencies can pursue presidential directives only as long as there's no statutory limitation that prohibits the agency from following the president's command. 
And so in light of this doctrine, you might assume that there's very little conflict between presidential directives and the legislative mandates that govern agencies. But this is not necessarily the case. As we know, the president often directs agencies to formulate and implement policies in pursuit of her goals. Modern presidents have centralized executive action in order to further controversial policies. And in doing so, uh, 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 agencies may pre- uh, excuse me, the president may pressure agencies to behave in ways that run counter to statutory requirements or expectations. More specifically, the president sometimes directs agencies to under or over enforce the law. So as to under enforcement, There are some cases from the past three administrations that offer examples. Um, American Lung Association versus EPA, which was decided this year, showcases President Trump pushing the EPA to contract the scope of its delegated authority. In this case, the D.C. Circuit decided that Trump's Trump's EPA, uh, that the refusal of this agency, rather, to implement an Obama-era clean emissions plan, clean air emissions plan, uh, was unlawful under the Clean Air Act. Uh, this case echoes Mass versus EPA, in which the Supreme Court held invalid the EPA's position, which at the time was directed by George W. Bush, um, that it was not authorized to regulate carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases as pollutants under the Clean Air Act. Of course, immigration is a quintessential example of a legislative arena in which some presidents, like Biden and Obama, have been found by courts to uh, to under-enforce immigration law as a result of their implementation of enforcement priorities, while others like George W. Bush, Trump, and now even Biden have been viewed as over-enforcing the punitive elements of immigration law. Uh, in regards for, you know, further to presidential attempts to sort of expand the scope of an agency's enforcement power, there are cases from the Biden administration all the way back to Clinton. Uh, in Louisiana versus Biden, which is a recent district court case, the court found unlawful under the Mineral Leasing Act President Biden's new directive uh, to agencies to pause new oil and gas leases for purposes of environmental protection. Um, arguably, Biden's sweeping set of goals for antitrust regulation might be in contravention of statutes governing the Federal Trade Commission. I'm sure that Dick Pierce, if he's in the audience, will have a lot more to say about this. Um, in addition, both Biden and Trump appear to have directed agencies to pursue health care policies outside the scope of the jurisdiction granted uh, to, to the relevant agencies under existing legislation. So this includes an executive order claiming to preserve health care for those with pre-existing conditions and other executive orders pledging to bring down prescription drug prices. And then, of course, in FDA versus Brown and Williamson, President Clinton is credited with pushing the agency to go beyond its statutory authority under, under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act to regulate tobacco. And so this case is the paradigmatic example of presidential administration discussed by Justice Kagan in her famous article on the topic. Um, and here the Supreme Court found that the agency acting under presidential directive mischaracterized the scope of its jurisdiction and that its attempt to regulate tobacco was therefore unlawful. So these cases all suggest that by influencing what agencies do for her own policymaking purposes, the president may push agencies to contravene statutory purpose or requirements. Okay, so what can we take away from all of this? First, while both the executive and legislative branches have constitutional claim to administrative control, the executive has failed to some extent to acquiesce to legislative primacy in lawmaking. This is evidenced by presidents' neglect of their duty to influence agencies in ways that benefit a searching administrative inquiry into legislative meaning. So in other words, this sort of prevailing narrow focus of modern presidents on their own policy interests and the acquiescence of scholars to a self-centered sort of version of executive unilateralism has rendered the idea of faithful execution somewhat hollow. So what might be done about this? Well... 
yeah, Eric Posner has expressed impatience with separation of powers metaphors and suggested that scholars instead engage in bureaucratic innovation. So I try to do just that. <laughs> First, uh, uh, I suggest that Congress choose to specify the president's role in legislation. As Vermeil has noted, regulations could be required by statute to implement only certain executive orders or presidential directives. In the past, Congress has passed statutory language allotting a, a role for executive orders and installing the president or a proxy as the clear leader of multi-agency actions. In one promising example in which the agency promulgated regulations to implement executive orders, these regulations were deemed valid because the president was acting according to powers given to him by the governing statute itself. Second, courts could continue, should continue, to restrain agencies from altering their statutorily or authorized jurisdiction at the president's direction, just as they did in FDA versus Brown and Williamson and, and this year in American Lung. Uh, recent controversies sort of that might bring this idea to life include President Trump's attempt to undercut the Pendleton Act with a new Schedule F. When Biden, re re while Biden did repeal this plan, it's likely to be revitalized by future presidents, and so courts should not approve it and approve of it unless there's legislation passed to authorize this sort of universal at-will removal of civil servants. Another example is what, uh, the Trump administration's plans to sunset certain regulations unless they undergo regulatory review. I know that I have zero minutes left, but I'm going to take 30 more seconds. Do it, do it. <laughs> Wrap it up. Um, okay. We'll take it away from Brian. At the yeah, end. <laughs> or you can take it away from your you know, conversation with me afterwards, if you'd like. Yeah, or from Brian. Let's just, yeah. <laughs> um, in any case, this Trump, this Trump administration plan to sunset regulations, um, right now, as, as far as I know, neither Congress nor the Biden administration has revoked this rule or addressed its potential consequences, which could include the, you know, imminent invalidation of tens of thousands of agency regulations. And so uh, this policy could be unlawful without appropriate legislation and might be arbitrary and capricious in any case. Um, all right. Uh, agencies, too, can be involved in determining whether a presidential aim or directive is something the agency has the authority to implement pursuant to legislation. So I had a bit to say about that, but I'll put that aside. Um, briefly, Chevron can be used in a manner to, that discourages agencies from relying heavily on statutory interpretation that favors the president's policy interests in an outsized way. And finally, courts could use the arbitrary and capricious standard to ensure that agencies acting under political pressure nonetheless demonstrate careful consideration of legislative requirements as well. Um, uh, uh, some have suggested that arbitrary and capricious review can be used in an accountability-forcing manner, or at, uh, or at least in the most egregious instances to ensure that agencies are not making up reasons to cover their sort of naked pursuit of the president's agenda. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to that, and I look forward to our conversation. Awesome. Well, this is this is a really great project, and I, you know, it's one of those where when, when I when I first kind of read it, I think, yeah, the president shouldn't violate the law. We should all agree with that. But your, your, your take is more than that. Like it, it's, we, the president should reframe the way that she views her role from one of enacting a policy that she thought she was elected for to one of kind of enacting the will of Congress. And it, got, it, it, it reminded me of Kevin Stack's question to Naomi Rao today of like, how do each of the branches do it? And I think Naomi kind of basically said, um, Congress asked, do we want to do it? That's how they interpret, you know. Um, courts ask, can they do it? Uh, and it seems like, at least under Naomi's approach, Judge Rao's approach, that the executive branch asks, like, how do we do it? Right? And I think that's where, where, for me, it's tricky is there's a lot of room for the president to do things within, like, the law, you know, lawful constraints. And I just kind of wondered, how does that affect things, right? Like, if the goal is, we're going to try to implement our policy in a lawful way, but we are going to try to implement it. 
And how does that kind of play out? And, and this kind of leads to the theme we had this morning of, you know, the president is dealing with some really old statutes. Yeah. Uh, and like, the dead hand of Congress is, uh, is quite alive when it comes to that. And, and I mean, you know more as someone, one of the leading experts on, like, immigration administration. Like, that's like, like a classic example of uh, what, what, what role, you don't see a role for, like, electoral, you know, like, accountability of the president's coming in wanting to kind of implement a pretty aggressive immigration reform. Uh, I kind of wonder how you deal with the old statutes, new problems issue. Yeah, that's a good set of questions. Thank you. Um, So, you know, I want to be careful here in in the the sort of description of this project and the, the, the way that I articulate this argument. I'm not arguing necessarily or perhaps at all that presidential intervention results in unlawful agency behavior. I'm not taking that sort of hard stance. As you said, rather, I'm pushing back against this general sort of zeitgeist prioritizing the president's interests in administration. And so whether or not that leads to sort of an unlawful outcome is is somewhat beside the point. Rather, I'm seeking to kind of shape or change the environment in which administrative agencies are sort of acting and the, and the way that the sort of pressures that they face from the administration um, alter their incentives and motivations for approaching statute and the enforcement of statute as it does. And so I think that there's a lot of components of that. Um, I do think that, you know, it's, a, it's important in some instances to consider that Congress may have wanted uh, or intended for the significant exercise of discretion. Um, and that if that's the case, if, for instance, Congress intended a high-level judgment to be the kind of uh, leading component in how a statute is enforced, that's fair. But that to get to that point requires analysis, an honest sort of evaluation of the statute, as opposed to the kind of leveraging of that statute in order to pursue a political interest or a you know, policy-making interest. I mean, in terms of the old statute, new problems question, again, I don't have an, I don't have an answer for each statute that might sort of fall into this category. But I do believe that agencies could spend more time thinking about whether or not grappling with a problem in a certain way nonetheless adheres to the essence or the purpose of a statute. In other words, you know, in these kind of environmental protection cases, for an agency to sort of claim, you know, we can't we can't do this. We can't, we can't, we can't govern, we can't um, regulate this particular pollutant or, or regulate in this manner. To me, it seems to be kind of a disingenuous reading of the statute, even if their argument is, well, this is something new that uh, could not have been anticipated when Congress passed the Clean Air Act in the first instance. I mean, that's a very sweeping sort of thing to say, but in terms of the way I'm seeing the cases in this area, that's my takeaway, right? And so uh, it's more of an approach-oriented argument than it is one that's focused on particular outcomes. Do any of the panelists want to jump in? or yeah, I, I feel free, audience, if you have questions, too. So, so love the project. I, I guess a thought, I mean, I, I agree completely as a matter of sort of first principles that, you know, I don't you put it quite this way, but, but Congress is sort of supposed to be the primary branch, and the, the president is, should be a kind of faithful agent in carrying out what they've enacted. Um, but I wonder about Implementing that in terms of purpose, because um, purpose is a slippery concept, yeah. and um, you know 
the political incentives in the current moment are so strong for presidents to try and you know push against limitations to achieve their policy aims. And so, particularly if you think about old statutes, you know, something like the, you know, take the, I, the Immigration Nationality Act, you know, so the, you could look at it through different lenses and, you know, characterize its purpose differently. So, is it, it, it makes me think we should be looking for kind of hard formal rules more than, than kind of, uh, although, so I agree with the general aspiration, but I wonder if, if if we're better off looking for kind of hard-edged rules to hold the president to congressional directives rather than trying to think in terms of purpose. It's always easier to implement a hard-edged rule, right? I mean, so I, your point is absolutely well taken. Uh, initially, this project was uh, more of a confrontation of kind of constitutional take care powers. I, I backed away from that because a lot of great work has been done in that area, and I, it wasn't sort of the the fight that I wanted to take on, although maybe I need to come back into it. Um, and so you're right, the kind of substitution of this idea of essence or purpose is not as satisfying. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I struggle with that because what exactly, what exactly is purpose? Does purpose mean, you know, purposive inter- interpretation, contextual interpretation, kind of speak to purpose? I mean, there's, there's a lot of kind of granular um, analysis that that could go into, you know, filling this out into a much longer paper that I would force you all to read. Um, uh, and so, uh, I think, I think. You know, for now, the idea that purpose is determined relative to statute and that purpose should be the kind of endeavor of the agency is is where I stand. In other words, I can't tell you precisely how to divine purpose in any given instance, but I do want to see that the agency has at least tried to do that instead of, as often seems to be the case, seeking to interpret or bend or implement statutes sort of nakedly in pursuit of presidential interests um, um, to the exclusion of a consideration of what it is that the statute sort of, you know, what the statute sort of seeks to accomplish, whether it be specific elements or aspects of the INA or maybe more generally, depending on the context. You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, I can't come up with any kind of clear rule or, or standard for you, but uh, it's just this, you know, if we contextualize this in the real world, agencies aren't even paying lip service to the idea that their implementation or their enforcement of statute has anything to do with the statute itself, as opposed to, say, in the immigration context, either the kind of, you know, detention, punitive-oriented uh, interests of the administration or, on the other end, you know, the interest in sort of creating a more humane immigration system in lieu of Congress actually doing something about it. And so... Uh, you know, there seems to be room for improvement there in terms of moving away from the, the president's interest towards the kind of essence of legislation. But I, I, I haven't settled on more precise terminology yet um, or, or rules or standards. So thank you. It's a great point. And I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, Brian. Yeah. I was curious. It seems like maybe there are two categories of, of uh, statutes uh, or vague statutes. Uh, one where uh, the vagueness is incidental. It's, you know, humans are, are flawed and, and we uh, sometimes can't anticipate everything. And another class of statutes where uh, the, um, uh, the vagueness might be deliberate. So I'm thinking here about regulate in the public interest standard. Uh, can we think of those as more of maybe Congress giving the president a green light uh, not to try to divine uh, the past Congress's purpose, but, but for that subset of statutes? It's regulate in the public interest, uh, vague by design statutes. Um, are, are those an exception uh, to, to your model? Maybe. 
So in some instances, vague delegations might suggest that Congress expected or intended, intended or at least expected there to be kind of high-level political decision-making or high-level political determination sort of steering how the, the legislation is implemented. But in other cases, it might be the case that Congress didn't have the requisite expertise. So the, the benzene case kind of comes to mind, right? In that situation, in the public interest, the court determined actually required some kind of technical decision in order to substantiate or in order to uh, render constitutional the delegation in that case, right? And so uh, sometimes this vague terminology suggests that there should be a devolution of power from the president to the administrative agencies and maybe to technocrats and to experts. Not in every instance, but in some cases that might be true. We, and by we I mean the agencies, the government, doesn't know until it looks. And and uh, instead of taking vague delegation as an invitation to adhere or to kind of, uh, you know, cave to, to political interests, why not uh, evaluate that um, sort of more honestly or sincerely in the first instance to decide? Okay. I might have time for, is there a question or no? Yeah, Adam's got a question. I've got so many com- like thoughts, but I'll, I'll jot them all down and send them to you. I'm happy to have them. Thank you. Bijal, just thinking about looking squarely at the, the executive branch and, and how we might work out some of the problems you've identified. Do you think these are problems that have to be solved just by sort of character and, and restraint of a president? Or do you think you can build institutions within the executive branch that help to actually straighten this out? I mean, kind of like equivalent to OIRA or other kind of internal checks and balances. Yeah, so uh, there's sort of two elements of that question I'd like to respond to. The first is, I do want to be clear that when I talk about the problems, I am <laughs> very much backing away from my own sort of policy preferences to try to draw this kind of more universal standard, um, which might end up uh, which might end up leading to outcomes in certain policy arenas that I personally would not agree with. So I'll kind of put that out there. That by problem, I don't mean problems in certain regulatory areas. I mean just this idea that presidential administration is for the president alone. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of whether I think a concentrated or centralized executive branch could nonetheless lead to the framework that I'm seeking, very much yes. And so that's the sort of idea that uh, a unitary executive theory or a unitary executive could exist for purposes of um, uh, uh, sort of emphasizing legislative primacy. In other words, centralized mechanisms that uh, exist not to ensure that regulatory um, processes or regulations fall in line with the president's agenda, but rather to ensure that agencies are being pushed to fully evaluate the nuances of legislation and to do so in a careful way that's justifiable on the, you know, on the, either on the terms or based on the purpose of the legislation itself. I mean, I think the president could have a strong role in, in pushing agencies to, to fall in line with um, a legislative-centered administration. Um, I don't know that it would require changes in the structures we have, but it would certainly require changes in the incentives that motivate a lot of how these structures um, engage in review. Uh, thank you. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So we're going to, speaking of uh, some type of agency that would be, like, I, I was thinking of like the Office of Legal Counsel maybe weighing in every time and saying whether the president's doing the right thing. So we're going to Turn to someone who spent three years in the office. Was that a good transition? No, I tried. Um, uh, to Zach Price, who's a professor of law at UC Hastings College of Law. 
Uh, one of the nation's leading scholars on non-enforcement uh, and um, discretion. Uh, and um, one paper I love that I don't think gets as much love as it should um, is the funding restrictions and separation of powers that came out in Vanderbilt a few years back, uh, where Zach just really takes a deep dive into, you know, when can Congress restrict it or not. And cause there's some cases since, I think, that really... I think his paper sheds light on the likes. But that's not his, what he's talking about today. Um, he's back to non-enforcement. Oh, I guess that is somewhat non-enforcement as well. Uh, and he's going to talk about his new paper, uh, Faithful Execution in the Federal Government and the 50 States. So I'll turn over to Zach. All right, well, thanks so much uh, for the generous introduction and everyone at the Gray Center for having me. It's great. It's a real honor to be here. So uh, my paper is about faithful execution and prosecutorial discretion, uh, which is Chris mentioned is one of my personal hobby horses, um, but it sort of ended up being mostly about state law and mostly about criminal law, which which maybe makes an awkward fit for the panel. Uh, but I do think it has some implications for presidential power. I'll, I'll I'll come back to. But basically, the core argument in the paper is that we've developed a sort of nationalized and polarized debate over enforcement discretion, uh, meaning the power of executive officials not to enforce laws they they dislike. Uh, but in fact, the governing provisions in the 50 states differ quite a lot from each other and from the U.S. Constitution. And so I think we should give effect to those uh, you know, positive laws or at least give them, give them more attention and, and not just presume a uniform model or allow practices to migrate across jurisdictions. Um, as I'll explain, though, I think um, that really hasn't happened. <laughs> Instead, what we see is a migration of, of novel practices from one place to another without much regard for the underlying st- structural arrangements. And I think that tells us some uh, potentially worrisome things about kind of current constitutional politics and possibly about presidential administration. So I have some slides that are very primitive. I don't normally do PowerPoint, and you'll see why shortly. <laughs> um, but I thought I'd start with a kind of conceptual f- account of enforcement discretion as a um, separation of powers issue, at least the way I kind of think about it. So I think you can think of, you know, the question really is to what extent do executive officials who are charged with enforcing some conduct rule, um, you know, to what extent can, do they have authority to strip that law of force through their enforcement choices? And this is a power that right now, you know, as we'll talk about, is generally associated with, with progressive politics because of the way it's been used recently, but it comes up in interesting ways across history in lots of different contexts. So I think it can have varied political valence. And, and, we, and we could, the way I think about it is you can think of a variety of ways in which prosecutors or enforcement officials might think about their discretion or ways in which they might exercise it, falling along kind of spectrum in terms of the degree of conflict between executive choices and uh, kind of respect for the primacy of the underlying law. So at one extreme, you might imagine kind of automatic enforcement, uh, kind of enforcement against all violations that come up that would obviously be closely aligned with the underlying statute or law. I mean, as a practical matter, that's going to be really difficult in a lot of areas today. There's just too much law and too many violations. But close in there is more realistically, it would be something like only employing a kind of case-specific non-enforcement. So everyone is potentially at risk, but you're, you're kind of picking and choosing cases as you go. At the other extreme, you know, the executive might claim a power to just cancel the law altogether, uh, what historically was known as a suspending power, or you might think of it as kind of 
ongoing after the fact veto. That would obviously be sort of changing the law itself and therefore giving primacy to the executive choice. But I think there are a range of options in between that involve kind of escalating conflict between executive choices and the, the primacy of the statute. So they might, for instance, set internal priorities to guide uh, you know, line-level discretion or go a step further and actually announce those priorities, which, which advances kind of transparency and accountability, but also might invite evasion and thereby kind of create, un- undermine the, the statutory primacy to a greater degree. But then further down the line, you might have kind of, um, kind of cate- what I call categorical non-enforcement, or some people call prosecutorial nullification, like kind of open policy of just not, you know, we're not going to enforce this law or won't apply it in certain circumstances. Or you might do so sort of prospectively, promise people you can go ahead and breach this law, um, will, will, uh, you know, there won't be enforcement against you. So I think we can understand a kind of question about the permissible scope of enforcement discretion as sort of question about where along this line you, you draw a limit and say this, this goes beyond executing the law and becomes an impermissible kind of effort to change it. So, but what sort of motivates the paper is I think in recent years we've seen a kind of pretty rapid normalization of those options down at the far end, um, a kind of open, deliberate, categorical non-enforcement. Um, I mean, there are earlier examples uh, but I think until pretty recently, the norm was more sort of tacit non-enforcement, at least in the criminal area. You know, prosecutors wouldn't go after various things, but they, they kind of keep it quiet, right, wouldn't, wouldn't claim this authority. But now uh, people, it's become kind of a point of pride, right, a selling point. People campaign on, on non-enforcement policies. And, you know, we had this at the federal level, as you're probably familiar. We had some high-profile um, big deal policies in the Obama administration with marijuana, uh, immigration, and Affordable Care Act uh, rollout that involved this, had this kind of structure. But interestingly, since then, I think the, the main actions mainly shift to kind of the local level, uh, where one aspect, among many others, of the, the you know, so-called progressive prosecutor movement has been to embrace this style of, of non-enforcement. So just as one example, right, the district attorney where I teach in San Francisco, right, uh, is campaigned on not prosecuting a, a range of offenses, uh, has adopted various other policies, and there are a bunch of examples pretty quickly arising nationwide. Now, you're probably familiar with this debate. There's some really big kind of questions of criminal justice policy and the background motivating these, uh, these choices. Uh, but what I'm trying to do in the paper is get at, you know, well, what is the, the formal governing law in the various states actually say about this? And um, I think it's, it's an important question because a lot of the debate that I've seen has tended to either presume a kind of uniform model of prosecutorial authority or at least um, a uniform model of sort of local prosecutorial authority. So that's the question I'm trying to answer. So is, is this sort of categorical non-enforcement lawful? Now, at the federal level, um, I've written about this in the past, go through it some in the paper. I think generally... The answer is no, uh, and I can, I can talk more about that. But I think what's more novel, and maybe I'll turn to, is some examples of the variety in, uh, in different states. So to frame this discussion, I think you know, it's important to appreciate there's a key difference between the states and the federal government, which is that nearly all the states have locally elected prosecutors. So at least with criminal enforcement, um, it's to varying degrees, right? There's a locally elected prosecutor charged with enforcing the law. So there's not a unitary executive branch, right? It, it's, it's divided up. 
Now, even on that point, right, people draw competing inferences. Some people say, well, the whole point of having a local prosecutor is to enable them to be responsive to local preferences. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so that fits this allowing kind of broad non-enforcement. Other people say, well, that, what's the point of having a statewide legislature if its laws can be stripped of force in, in different places? But what I think that misses is actually the state laws, at least many of them directly address this and have, have a lot of variation. So I'll just give you a few examples. I've got a whole 50-state survey in the paper, but I won't put you to sleep with that. Um, but a couple examples. So Massachusetts, for example, has a clause in its constitution that forbids not only the power of suspending laws, which would be that sort of law cancellation power I mentioned, but also suspending the execution of laws. And, you know, it seems to be, I'm not sure what a suspension and execution of the law would be if it's not getting at that sort of categorical open non-enforcement. I mean, that seems like a suspension of the execution of the law. So there are a couple other states that have that, not too many, but, but um, several. Another interesting example is actually California, which has a provision, interestingly, put, advocated, it was adopted by ballot proposition advocated by then local district attorney Earl Warren uh, that imposed a duty on the statewide attorney general to ensure uniform and adequate enforcement of state laws and to supplant local district, to kind of fill in the role of the local district attorney when, when that's not happening. So that might mean that the local DA can do whatever they want unless and until the attorney general acts, but it, again, seems sort of designed not to, um, not to allow kind of categorical disregard for statewide laws in particular places. So those are some examples on that end of things. And there are a bunch of kind of intermediate cases. But to turn over at the other end, um, there are a number of states that, that much more specifically insulate local choices from any sort of override. So Pennsylvania, for example, uh, requires the attorney general to go to court and establish uh, an abuse of discretion uh, to supplant local DA's choices. Uh, so that seems to design to give degree of a greater degree of autonomy to the local DA. Uh, and then there are some states that just, just completely forbid, and it, there's no statewide official with authority to override uh, local choices. So here's a quote from the Mississippi Supreme Court uh, saying that there's a kind of constitutional independence of the local DA that, that basically no one can touch. So again, that might not mean that What's contemplated is, um, uh, you know, local categorical non-enforcement, but at the very least it gives the, the local DA the autonomy to do that, and no one else can really countermand it. So my point is there, there's this, de- this degree of variation in, the, in these laws um, that, you know, I think we should pay attention to, just as a matter of kind of um, state constitutionalism. But... I think it's interesting that we, that we haven't. And one thing about it is that that variation doesn't really track any kind of tidy current partisan geography. Uh, states in these categories don't really map current alignments or even current places where there's most controversy about um, the style of prosecution. So it really seems like kind of political considerations, policy preferences have really driven institutional behavior more than these underlying laws. And I think that raises two general points just to, just to close um, worth highlighting. One is it suggests a, a kind of weak enforcement of state constitutional law and, and organizational statutes. And, you know, that might not be bad. I mean, maybe, you know, there, again, there are good policy reasons why, uh, you know, 
prosecutors of this style are getting elected. And so maybe that flexibility is, is desirable. But if we start to see at the state level the kind of uh, political conflict we see at the federal level, right, one of the goals of constitutionalism is to provide some ground rules about who, who decides what. And so if we're kind of weakly enforcing the state constitutional requirements in this area, um, we might want to worry about how stable those structures are in, in other areas. And a second implication, which finally brings me to the top of the conference, is this pattern of results might suggest that um, high-profile federal examples can have a profound effect on how institutions operate at other levels of government. I can't quite prove a causal connection, but it seems at least plausible to me that the kind of high-profile controversy during the Obama administration produced a lot of polarization around this issue that helped um, you know, encourage categorical law enforcement in some areas, discourage it in others. And at the very least, we've seen a pattern sort of like that in some other areas. Uh, the duty to defend um, laws against legal challenges had that kind of cascade where federal examples produce changes in state uh, institutional behavior. And so it might be an underappreciated aspect of presidential administration that warrants more attention that um, examples set at the federal level can have unintended cascading effects uh, at other areas of government um, that, that should be considered. So this is very much a work in progress, so I'm, I'm really eager for any thoughts or reactions or uh, comments. So yeah, it's, it's, a, I mean, it's a tremendous amount of work going through all those states. I, mean, I just imagine you're just sitting in front of your computer and yeah, got some Westlaw skills. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so one th- one thought I had is putting on my I teach local government law and kind of putting yeah. my local government law hat. And I mean, one real complicating part of the story, comparing local prosecutors to you know the president, is there's a huge battle between local governments and the state. Right? Yeah, uh, a huge battle, and and the battle varies by state. In some state, there's more. You know, home rule or more kind of state local autonomy versus the state and other states there's not. And, and there's actually a lot of, when I was reading your paper, that was fascinating to kind of read the role of the state attorney general because there's a lot of conflict right now between local prosecutors and local lawyers and state attorney generals. I'm thinking like the opioid litigation is like a really classic example of this and where, where local governments are trying to get in the game and get some money. You know, and the state's trying to shut it down and kind of keep it for itself. And, and I wonder if there's like a similar story going on here or if we're going to see that story happen soon. Like if the, you know, the, the rise of the progressive prosecutor is going to lead to that. And, and, and if that's the case, like, I mean, if you, how do you kind of factor in the, the state, the state's role when you're kind of drawing the analogy between the two? I don't know. Okay. I'm, I'm also just kind of curious, like, if you saw that as like a recurring yeah. theme in, in the statutory frameworks. Well, so there are some some older papers I cribbed from that that looked at the sort of supersession power, right? The power of, of de- attorneys general or statewide officials to intervene in local cases in a lot of states, and what those papers often concluded is like it exists on paper, but you know is is rarely exercised. Right? As a practical matter, there's a lot of local autonomy. So. Um, I, I mean, that seems to be true, but I think it doesn't really get at this question because, um, as, as even some of those authors point out, right, it's probably because in the sort of tough-on-crime era, everyone was on the same page. So there was, it wasn't necessarily conflict, you know, at least more of a shen- shared agenda across levels of government. But I, I think you, you 
are likely to see now more conflict potentially between statewide elected officials and local prosecutors about particular choices. Um, you know, you don't see that in California because everyone's kind of on the same page, but there are certainly states where that could happen. And you do also see, you know, some of these laws might, to the extent they're not constitutional provisions, might change. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, the legislature um, pared back that statute I mentioned for some crimes in response. So I think you will see more conflicts like that, but I think um, in, as those, if, if it's true that those conflicts are going to heat up, um, we should have some clear baseline rules, and that, that's sort of what I've tried to, tried to map out. Yeah. No, Bashal or Brian, do you have any thoughts? Or? I have a question. So, uh, so first of all, I, I really enjoy, admire this project. I, I like projects where, and I've engaged in some of these myself, they're a huge undertaking, <laughs> where you're sort of looking at a phenomenon transubstantively across contexts and trying to you know, understand it in this kind of holistic way. Um, I think one of the challenges of doing that is sort of having clearly differentiated um, categories and reconciling the different elements or the different kind of influences that lead to this similar phenomenon in these various contexts. And so I just, I really just had some questions about, uh, you know, uh, about how you, how you, the similarities and the differences that you found in various contexts. And so, um, Prosecutorial discretion, although the terminology is the same and maybe even some of the mechanisms are the same, they have kind of different implications for the civil versus the criminal context, right? And so I, I was thinking about do the justifications for discretion in those various, in those two contexts differ, whether it be resource oriented, you know, access to justice or justice uh, um, enabling, um, or should they be weighed differently? Should we understand the sort of power and the incentives underlying discretion in those contexts differently. For instance, in the civil context and maybe even at the federal level, there's this understanding that the executive branch engages in prosecutorial discretion as a direct sort of, as a manifestation of constitutional power to take care, right? And so there's a tension there, but that's the purpose. Um, do these things look different at the state and local level, maybe in the criminal versus civil context? Um, and, and a different question, but yet one also about categorization, that sort of spectrum that you laid out. Yeah. I wondered, I mean, th there seems to be a fair amount of overlap between the two ends of the spectrum. In other words, case-specific determinations, which you suggest are more statute-focused, mm -hmm. often come as a result of categorical non-enforcement requirements, right? And so the, the president, for instance, might say in immigration, X, Y, and Z situations are those in which we don't want to pursue enforcement, but to actually apply those directives requires a very specific case-by-case -case determination. And so how do you distinguish between those categories in the real world when, in fact, there might be a fair amount of overlap? And so uh, this may be just a question of organization or, or clarifying, but these are some things that pop to head. Yeah, no, th those are great points. So, uh, I mean, civil versus criminal, I mean, you know, I think, well, I think at the federal level, there's actually not a good structural constitutional reason to distinguish between the two. There's, there's sort of, it's the same provisions, the faithful execution clause, you know, vesting clause, and, you know, then the, the function of separation of powers. So, so I think as a matter of kind of structural analysis, the federal level, um, it, you know, criminal law might be, might be the most compelling circumstance where we want some kind of safety valve and enforcement, but I think the underlying constitutional structure is the same 
And so th- there's a queer parallel. At the state level, it may be different. That's a good point um, that I should think more about. Um, it does also seem to me that the criminal example, like crim- prosecutorial discretion is such a big function of, of American criminal justice that it, it tends to drive, you know, animate how we think about enforcement discretion in other areas. I mean, Heckler versus Cheney, for example, refers to prosecutorial discretion. So there's that, that overlap also. But um, I, I should be more clear about, I, I, you know, goes beyond the scope here to think about what enforcement discretion in other areas looks like, like in the state. And anyway, so that's, that's, that point is well taken. Um, on the spectrum, that it's, it's certainly true that, that the, the lines can be blurry. I guess the, the key point, at least at the federal level, that, that I would defend is I think there is a... So, so I think that the separation of powers implies properly a kind of case-specific discretion, but not really much more than that. But we do have lots of areas where much broader discretion is inevitable due to resource constraints, you know, the practical impossibility of full enforcement. And those areas, I think there's a, you know, slippery but important boundary between priority setting and kind of categorical non-enforcement that is often a matter of kind of style and expression, (laughs) maybe more than like who actually laws get enforced against. But I I just think when you see this, you know, like there are lots of priority saying policies where people, you know, they shape what the agency does, but regulated parties don't think, you know, they can just go ahead and, you know, violate the rule outside of those boundaries. But then you see areas like, like marijuana, I think it's just completely taken hold that, I mean, it's a matter of what, how people behave. Like they, they I mean, the person on the street assumes that marijuana is, is legal when it's still, you know, a serious federal felony. And I just think that that really just it offends the notion of faithful execution. And, and I thought, actually thought that policy as written was really framed in terms of priorities and kind of respected this boundary. But as it's been implemented, um, I think it really illustrates how, how powerfully enforcement policies can shape on the ground conduct rules. All right. Well, we got to get to Brian's because we got... We're going to end at 2.45, Adam tells me. So I'm just going to, Brian, let's skip your, can you do your comment afterwards? Oh, sure, yeah. Because okay. we've got to get to the paper. Um, so, so just quick introduction of Brian Feinstein. He's assistant professor of law at Legal Studies and Business Ethics at, War, at Warden. Um, he, I, I, I learned from your bio, I didn't know that you, in private practice, you represent your outside counsel federal housing finance agency. Uh, agency Aaron Nilsson and I unsuccessfully defended the constitutionality of this le- this year, so that, that was kind of a sore point. But he's a really versatile scholar and lots of empirical work, great theory, great doctrine. Uh, I, my, the stuff I first learned when I ran into Brian's work was all on Congress, his paper in WashU and in the Administrative Law Review on Congress and the Administrative State just really, I think, kind of upped the game for us that, that look at the interaction between Congress and, and the Administrative State. And today he's going to be presenting a paper called Divided Agencies that he's co-authored with Abby Wood, who's a, a law professor at USC. So I'll turn it over to Brian. Well, well thanks so much, Chris, for that uh, very generous introduction. And uh, had Abby known that you'd be giving so kind and generous introductions, uh, I'm sure she would have uh, flown here uh, from, uh, from California uh, for that. So thank you. Um, so I'll start by observing, um, I guess, if not a split in the literature on political control over agencies, uh, at least a developing 
uh, hairline fracture or maybe something more. Um, so you have Justice Kagan's view, uh, which I think uh, is fair to say is the dominant view over the past 20 years, uh, which places the president uh, at the center of the administrative state. Uh, for Kagan, that's not only a, a descriptive statement, uh, it's a normative claim uh, as well. She sees uh, presidential administration as uh, democratically accountable um, and, uh, and more efficient than its alternatives. Um, uh, there's a second group of, of scholars, and I guess I'll refer you to, to Ash's uh, presentation uh, on this uh, this morning. Uh, the second group, which examines uh, really uh, um, is in some tension with Kagan's view, uh, it examines the inner workings of agencies uh, and argues that the president, uh, through her appointees, uh, is just one of many competing actors within, agency, within agencies. And, and I think Kevin's work on um, uh, internal administrative law, looking at these kind of internal legal constraints, uh, I, I would uh, lump with that work as well. Um, and uh, so rather than seeing presidential direction, uh, this group sees complex power dynamics among presidential appointees, uh, civil servants, and others. Uh, Bijal's work uh, has advanced uh, this literature quite a bit. Um, and these power dynamics have really even entered the public consciousness with talk of, um, uh, quote-unquote, uh, a bureaucratic resistance or uh, a deep state um, uh, really uh, dominating conversations uh, beyond uh, the academy over the past uh, four years, five years. Um, and so Abby Wood and I wanted to, to dig a little deeper and uh, into this, this second strand, this internal design of agency strand, um, and uh, examine uh, when agencies are divided. So when you have uh, conservative appointees and liberal civil servants uh, or vice versa, um, uh, what are the implications of that? What are the consequences of that for uh, policymaking? Uh, the presidential uh, uh, um, administration account suggests uh, not much uh, because the president, um, uh, so the literature claims, uh, and her appointees, not civil servants, um, are the pivotal actors, according to that, uh, according to a strong version of that literature. Um, and then scholars examining these intra-agency dynamics uh, presumably would say that uh, there is a difference, that um, uh, agencies uh, where the appointees and uh, civil servants are of a similar mind are going to um, behave very differently from what we term uh, these divided agencies. So um, that's the, the claim, uh, but the literature really hasn't uh, empirically examined uh, that question, and that, that's where we hope to contribute. Um, so to answer the question, we first uh, get a measure of the political views of appointees and civil servants, and then we use that measure to identify uh, these divided agencies. Uh, and then we observe whether uh, divided agencies behave differently uh, in important respects concerning uh, rulemaking. Um, so before I get into the principal findings, I, I want to um, say a word about this, these, this measure, uh, which I think is the, the first attempt uh, to determine the relative ideological position uh, of appointees and civil servants across agencies uh, and time. So um, we use scores that were developed by uh, political scientist Adam Bonica. Um, his score is a sign of value um, to political donors uh, between negative two, which is the most liberal donors, to positive two as the most conservative, uh, based on their pattern of political giving. So if you give uh, $200 to Ted Cruz and $200 to Mitch McConnell, uh, Bonica's measure will, will place you on this unidimensional spectrum uh, in between those two senators. Um, and so then we use this measure uh, to identify the scores uh, for agency heads, who, no surprise, are active political donors, tend, tend to be, um, over uh, 34 years and in uh, 47 agencies. Um, we do the same uh, using um, an average score for civil servants in those agencies, uh, a caveat among the civil servants who donate, and, and that's an important limitation. Um, so here's what that looks like 
uh, in one agency. So here you have the Department of Justice uh, over time. The I hope you can. I hope this isn't an eye exam uh, for for the folks in the back. Um, but the circles are uh, the estimates for the Attorney General. So you see, unsurprisingly, during uh, the Reagan. Uh, and Bush administrations, uh, both Bush administrations, um, they're well to the right. Uh, under Clinton and Obama, uh, they're liberal. And then the diamonds are the uh, average political scores for civil servants uh, at the Department of Justice who make political contributions. Um, you see uh, much more uh, moderation there, uh, along with the secular trend uh, from uh, slightly right of center to slightly uh, left of center. So that's a basic introduction to the scores. Um, uh, we use these scores to estimate the extent to which um, appointees and civil servants within a given agency part ways, and then we observe whether policymaking differs uh, in those agencies. Um, so we find, unsurprisingly, that agency heads are liberal uh, during um, Democratic administrations uh, and conservative during Republican ones. Here you have a histogram uh, showing that bimodality. Um, what surprised us a little more was the distribution of civil servants. Um, so, yes, civil servants uh, do lean left. If you consider zero as uh, the median donor, um, uh, civil servants uh, tend to be uh, left of center, but not nearly as far left as uh, Democratic uh, appointees. Um, and there's also, I think, substantial variation uh, around this median, uh, even in some agencies, civil servants who are right of center. Um, I think as a first cut, that uh, raises questions about Kagan's claim that presidential administration enhances democratic accountability. Uh, it's not so, where you have uh, presidential appointees kind of ping-ponging between uh, conservative and liberal uh, extremes, depending on which party's in power. Um, instead, empowering civil servants, even admittedly left-of-center civil servants, um, can uh, move policy towards the center uh, during both Democratic and Republican administrations. Um, okay, so uh, with all this as a way of foundation, um, how does the rulemaking process differ in divided agencies? Uh, well, first, we find that divided agencies uh, have more time between uh, issuing a notice of proposed rulemaking and the final disposition, whether it's issuance of a final rule or, or a failure to do so. It's about five weeks longer um, in divided agencies. Uh, divided agencies are more likely to allow uh, late comments. Um, I think that suggests that these divided agencies are exhibiting uh, greater caution. Um, so generalist appointees and divided agencies need to rely on experts to formulate rules, uh, but where they might not trust uh, the views of their civil servants, who are kind of the natural source of that expertise, uh, they take their time. And perhaps they use the notice and comment period to, sol to solicit outside views and to check the work uh, of these expert uh, civil servants, um, and for their part, civil servants, you know, aware that their grand proposals uh, will likely come under fire from these outside experts during notice and comment, may trim their sales ex ante uh, and and moderate their proposals. Um, and so, although notice and comment is, is sometimes maligned as, as merely symbolic, uh, it may play an important role uh, in these divided agencies. Um, you also, concerning um, the final rules, uh, this cautious approach continues. Divided agencies promulgate uh, fewer final rules. The rules they do issue uh, tend to be shorter. Um, so we're not seeing paralysis in, in divided agencies. Uh, we, are see, uh, we are seeing rules getting out the door, um, but we do see greater caution and incrementalism both in the rulemaking process and in the content of these final rules. Um, so I think, uh, where does that leave us? Well, I think it calls into question, uh, first, um, Kagan's claim that presidential administration is democratically accountable, uh, as I mentioned. It also might cast some doubt on uh, her claim that uh, presidential administration is more efficient. 
um, you know, yes, you have a slower process in divided agencies, but we think that's because uh, agencies are, are, are checking their work, and, and you know, we're not seeing like intra-agency gridlock here. Uh, the efficiency loss with um, divided agencies uh, may not be as great as perhaps uh, Kagan, uh, one reading of her may imply. Um, so with that, uh, uh, with this conclusion that polarization is, uh, is only growing, uh, it seems that divided agencies are here to stay. Uh, we urge scholars to, to really um, build on this and, and really look under the hood to see what agencies are doing, uh, both to understand how administration works as a descriptive matter uh, and to generate policy prescriptions. Yeah, there, there's so much in this paper. There's so many different you know, ways we can take it in our seven, eight minutes left. But um, the w- one thought I had, and you, you hinted at this, is how much is rulemaking doing the work here as opposed to, you know, in other words, it'd be fascinating to kind of get a sense of is it different with enforcement? Is it different with adjudication? Is it different with licensing permitting? Uh, is this just something that's unique to rulemaking? And if so, like every administrative law professor is going to be like, great, you know, we all love rulemaking. It's, you know as opposed to these other kind of more shadowy agency approaches. I don't know. Obviously, your data set doesn't kind of shed any light on that, but I kind of wondered if you had any thoughts on uh, on whether rulemaking is really doing the work here. It's a great question, and uh, I think part of that, as you alluded to, shows the limitations of empirical work. Uh, Abby and I are hunting where the ducks are, and there is so much great data on the rulemaking process. And as you mentioned, adjudications can be shadowy, uh, even where we see the outcome. You know, How do you code the language uh, in a given uh, decision? Um, I, I don't see a reason why uh, other agency functions like adjudication and licensing would differ, um, but I'm, I'm hesitant to, to say more because we just don't have uh, that information. You don't think enforcement would? I mean, that seems like an obvious one where you might see more politics involved. Or maybe. Yeah, so the notion that, uh, that uh, appointees would, would be more likely to exert their... Uh, we certainly have seen that with the CFPB, for sure. I mean, uh, Mulvaney pulled back significantly on enforcement, excuse me, significantly on, on rulemaking, um, but enforcement, it seems, c- uh, continue to pace uh, during his his years. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, if, if, to the extent that enforcements are conducted, like in the banking agencies, these are kind of ground, you know, on the ground banking supervisors who are doing this work. It's very hard for a political appointee to um, to exert uh, um, oversight over that agent, somebody who's really, you know, in it in the bank. Um, maybe it's, I guess I'm punting in a different way now, but um, it, it might, different, might differ by agency in terms of just how, uh, how much um, room for slack there is, how, much, how hard it is uh, for the agency head to monitor the on-the-ground uh, bureaucrats. Zach or Michelle, do you have thoughts? Uh, well, I could, I was curious to hear more about the, I mean, you mentioned the limitations, but, you know, maybe you could say something about First of all, how many staff make political contributions, and it also might, you know, in that discussion, right? You find a lot of effects with rulemaking, but maybe it's people in other functions who are donating. So, it, it, I mean, the the results seem seem compelling, but I, I just wondered about the limitations of the measure. Yeah, and that's that's important to flag. So, around five percent of civil servants donate, which is low. It's actually in line with the general population. Uh, those folks tend to be concentrated in D.C., so about 80% of the civil servants who donate are based in um, the DMV area. Uh, I think the around half, maybe, or less than, fewer than half of civil servants nationwide are based in D.C., so it's, it's a D.C.-focused group that's donating. Um, given that in order to be in this, um, in this measure, you need to make at least two contributions of $200 each 
uh, over uh, over a two-year cycle, lots of twos there, um, uh, I think it's going to be skewed towards upper-income civil servants who, again, are more likely to be uh, rule writers. Um, the, the measure is correlated with, uh, with with other measures of civil servant ideology. So there's this great survey um, by uh, David Lewis and, and Josh Clinton of kind of think tankers. Maybe some of you have participated in this. Uh, and, and they uh, look at the perceived political slant of agencies at a static point in 2007. And our 2007 scores are pretty similar uh, to what they find. So it's an imperfect measure, uh, but, but, but I do have confidence that, that it's uh, valid in some ways. Do others have questions or on this paper or the others? We've got about five minutes left. Yeah, let's do. Three, five papers. The Sure. Well, so on Texas, so Texas, you know, as far as I can tell, is one of the states with with really strong autonomy for local prosecutors. So that might be why I hadn't really thought about that. But um, you know, I mean, you know, maybe abortion is a one-off, but there is certainly a possibility of more activation of private enforcement, which is a way around, uh, I mean, you see this at the federal level with with kind of private attorney general provisions. If Congress is worried about enforcement officials taking the law seriously, then they may enable private suits. And so, you know, if we get more controversy about the way officials are enforcing or not enforcing certain laws, you might get legislatures, you know, authorizing private enforcement of various sorts. I mean, there, we, you know, we kind of got rid of private enforcement 200 years ago because it has all sorts of problems. So it's not necessarily great to go back to that. Yeah. Yeah, we could go. I mean, yeah, no, so it's a, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, you know, I think the duty to defend raises some, some different questions. I mean, I think, I mean, Obama, he enforced the law, but, but didn't defend it in court, uh, as I recall. And that did actually Sai Prakash had a, had a great paper going through a kind of similar pattern with, with states have all different arrangements, but basically after you had that high-profile federal example, lots of state AGs are like, I'm not going to stand up in court and defend this law I don't like. So that, that's another example of kind of federal practice having a big effect that sort of overrides what would have seemed to be a local choices. I think on oh, – we'll let Kevin, quick question, and we'll wrap up, yeah. Thanks for the, tr- the terrific panel. Um, I guess I wanted to ask uh, Brian a question, maybe if I can sequence him for Pajal as well. Uh, so, I think it's Jack. So, um, so, 
one of your findings, there's so many great findings in this, I've talked to you about some of them, but one of them is that it takes longer in divided agencies, but it's not because of OIRA review, right? And I was kind of wondering about that, which is maybe in a divided agency, we, have a, we can have some sense that the agency head is a pretty good proxy for presidential preferences. They know they are, and they know they're oppositional. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of part of the mechanism. So I'm interested your, your thoughts on that. And oh, that, that's a great, yeah. That I had, we hadn't explored that as much as we should. We, we have a no result, so it's not necessarily that it doesn't matter. It's just we can't find evidence either way. I, I, think you're, I think you're right. I mean, I, I was so surprised to see that bimodality among uh, appointees. Really, um, you, know, you really do see uh, agency heads tracking uh, the president's views and very little, um, uh, you know, very little variance there. Um, so, you know, one could see to the extent the OIR administrator also is a good proxy for the president, uh, that, that maybe that's it. It's already fleshed out uh, at that stage. Um, I think the next step is to, to talk to folks who are involved in OIR. I had a great conversation with, uh, with Kristen Hickman last night, uh, mentioning how, um, and she mentioned how OIR uh, is involved uh, in the rule uh, making process, you know, even before their formal uh, um, stage begins, even before the agency reports it to OIRA. So it may be that our measure, which is just looking at, the, our clock starts once it's reported, uh, that may be imperfect there. And if I, can I ask a question? Yeah, just real quick, yeah, yep. Um, I guess one thought I had, which is what's the hook for, uh, for purposes? And I feel like arbitrariness review can give you more of that, which is one demand of arbitrariness review is you, ca you have to have a reasonable understanding of the purposes of the statute. Right. And so I think that that helps you build in. It can be, provide a lever for building in why the agency, why that's part of their duty. In fact, it's also the part of the, the, part of the judicially enforced duty. So I kind of feel like that that might allow It's not quite a bootstrap, but it's a lever uh, to, to sort of focus uh, um, implementers on purposes. I think it's a great, great piece of feedback. And I'll just say thank you, Kevin, for it. I'd say thank you to the panel. These three terrific papers, they're all on the Grace Center website, so you can go read them, provide feedback by email afterwards. But thanks so much for, for, for doing the great work.